while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, your host of the Reasonable Voices radio show. And in these times, we're very fortunate to have a most reasonable voice with us today, the CEO of Preservation Virginia, Elizabeth Costelny. How are you, Ms. Costelny? I'm very well, and good afternoon to you and to your listeners. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I, I know you certainly are one of those people at Preservation Virginia. You have a whole team of people who are always, year-round, every day, trying to preserve not only our past, but to transform our past into a 21st century contribution. How's that? Well, thank you. <laughs> and it is a big team of, a great team of uh, individuals I work with every day. Um, we really believe these places in Virginia, they hold uh, memories of history. Mm-hmm. And they make Virginia more strong, and more vital if these places are here to remind us of our past. So we're, I'm fortunate to, to be part of a, a team and to lead that effort. Well, tell us something about the, the history of Preservation Virginia. Certainly. Preservation Virginia was founded in 1889 as the Association for the Preservation of Virginia Antiquities. And since that time, we've been a voice for historic places. That has evolved over time. Back in the 19th and early 20th century, preservation efforts were focused often on a single house or a building, Mm. um, fighting to preserve that building. Um, But like everything, our mission and the way we approach our mission has evolved over time. So we work with landscapes, with archaeological sites, with communities, uh, protecting those tools like historic rehabilitation tax credits, Mm. or raising awareness about why people are moving back uh, to historic districts or how many people come and are attracted to Virginia as a heritage tourism destination and what that means for the economy. So it's broadened 
beyond the single sites, but mm. I think it's also multidimensional, telling the different perspectives of history and through the different lenses of uh, and viewpoints, how, so that we can understand that together. How how big a staff do you have for this? It sounds like a huge job. It is a huge job. In terms of our statewide work, we have um, 13 people, uh, but that includes all of those folks that help us with accounting and fundraising and membership. Um, out in the field, we have three individuals that work primarily on our preservation programs, and then we do also have six historic sites. And so Scotchtown, Patrick Henry Scotchtown, Cape Henry Lighthouse, John Marshall's Richmond Home, Bacon's Castle, um, and Smith's Board in Surrey, and then historic Jamestown down at Jamestown. How do you choose what to preserve? That must in itself be a huge process, yes? It is. A lot of our work today, and very different again from our beginnings, where the only way you could preserve something was through ownership, which has resulted in Preservation Virginia being involved in a number of different sites in different communities. But today, we look at building local advocacy mm. so that communities can protect what's in their their borders. So in terms of statewide programming, we work with our most endangered historic places site mm-hmm. list, and that helps us determine trends that we see in preservation. So it lets us also work with local communities to set up model programs to advocate on behalf of historic places, and then we can share that with other places around the Commonwealth. Um, So we're we're not having to reinvent the wheel all the time. Do you have any federal assistance, um, for nothing else, in establishing that indeed the location is uh, something that should be preserved historically? On the federal level uh, and on the state level, there are designations. National Landmark Register, um, the Virginia Register of Historic Landmarks. These kind of designations are sort of the first level of identifying these places are important. Mm. They're honorific. They don't bring protection. They sometimes on the federal level bring a process to to those places um, to evaluate new development. But then locally, historic districts and um, some of the historic designations that local localities confer on these places help to protect them. So in Charlottesville, there are historic districts just like there are um, around the the state. And and we should mention, I guess, um, uh, something I always like to point out because someone who works with you, Justin Serafin, has been on the show. He educated me on this point, and that is Preservation in Virginia is not just about uh, saying to the public, uh, this place has to be preserved, you can't touch it. But it's often about transforming or finding a, a, a new use for the facility or the location that serves the public today. I, I know you can explain that a lot better than I did, but I assure you Justin did a good job. Tell me, tell me how that works. I think you did a wonderful job. Um, <laughs> Having been around for 127 years, we know that there is progress is going to happen, and progress is good, but not progress that obliterates the historic fabric of this Mm -hmm. Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. And so we very much want to be at the table 
and be part of the discussions when new developments are occurring in a, a town or there's consideration to demolish a historic asset, to talk about how can this be reused, how can this, uh, how can appropriate development happen at the same time as preserving these places. And so it's really opening folks' eyes mm-hmm. that historic preservation isn't about stop and preserve this moment in time, but how does this structure or landscape benefit the future? Um, and that can be a lot of different ways. Sometimes when you talk to people about why they move into historic districts, they say, because, you know, I like being part of a continuity of people mm. that have lived in these buildings and walked these streets. Other times, in terms of our work down at on the James River, it's about protecting a real economic asset. The mm. historic triangle is about visitors that come, and they come because of the authenticity of that experience. So we want to find ways um, to make sure that that authenticity is preserved, but the needs of current communities and the future of a place also has an opportunity to grow. I have to say it sounds like a good message for America in general. How about success stories or even, and I I hate to put you through this pain, but there must have been, you can't win all the time. So there are some times when you try with your resources, financial and human resources, to accomplish your mission, your goals of preservation Virginia, but what happens when you don't win? We don't win all the time, um, and that's that's frustrating. But um, when I think of examples of that, I think back to uh, a site that was listed several years ago on our endangered list, the Luray Graded in High School. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great building um, in the center of Luray. Uh, it was owned by the county, and literally they wanted to tear it down to put up a parking lot. Oh, goodness. And um, we didn't prevail. Um, despite the community coming out to, to speak for how important the school had been to them personally, mm-hmm. and despite bringing in developers that were willing to put up a million dollars to do a historic rehabilitation of the building to serve as additional offices for the county, it was torn down. And I think when... You come through those, um, first there's the bit of mourning, Mm. Um, but then there's really the evaluation of looking back at that, and um, not so much what you could have done, but how do you offer that experience to other communities as a way to, you know, how do they avoid it? Mm -hmm. So I think that we we see that sometimes. Um, Right now we're involved with historic uh, courthouses across the Commonwealth. These yeah. are often debated um, about how does this historic building accommodate the space requirements and the security requirements that are necessary in our court system. We held a symposium in Stanton, it'll be two years ago, come this spring, that brought planners and architects and county officials from around the state um, and the Department of Historic Resources to talk about 
how mm-hmm. different localities had approached this and the ones that were successful and the ones that were less successful. Mm-hmm. And how can those be applied to courthouses that are now considering these um, changes? So that's often how we work. You know, one big success was all of the hullabaloo people may remember, I know you do, about the uh, the bypass in Charlottesville, mm-hmm. Virginia. It uh, it was discovered, maybe even by Preservation Virginia, I don't know, that you guys were out there fighting for the cause, that's for sure. But it was discovered that even though a, uh, a black um, cemetery existed on the plat uh, that was being used to decide the route, that had been ignored, and the potential of losing that uh, cemetery. That uh, or, uh, well, tell me about that because I'm just trying to remember it exactly. But it w- was it the Hemings uh, family? Uh, was it? Uh, I know their home was involved, but also there was a a cemetery that was involved, and Preservation Virginia was very much involved in saving it. Is that is? Am I getting that yes. right? <laughs> um, it was the Jesse Scott Sandman Farmstead. Yes. Okay. Uh, and it was about 27, uh, he had purchased about, in 1885, 27 acres of land. And this was well known by the African American community in Charlottesville, but I think had been sort of forgotten history by others. Mm. Um, and uh, we were actually alerted to it. A, number of different organizations were working on this issue, in particular the bypass, but um, we were alerted to it and it appeared on our endangered list 2013. Mm. And um, I think as a result of raising awareness of this history, it was in something called a Section 106 process, which is under the National Historic Preservation Act, and Preservation Virginia and the Department of Historic Resources and I believe um, Piedmont Environmental Council and a number of other groups met to see what alternatives could be determined to avoid harm to this this particular site. And mm. in the end, that's what prevailed. Okay. Well, I'm, when we come back in our next segment, uh, we're going to talk about a current issue that is ongoing for Preservation Virginia uh, with our guest today, the CEO of Preservation Virginia, Elizabeth Costelny. But before we go, I want to mention, because when I first, when I came from New York, I lived in Northern Virginia for a while, but then I bought a home west of Charlottesville, considerably west, but beautiful Blue Ridge Mountain territory. And I didn't know the area, so I would drive around. I always loved that anyway. Get in the car, just drive the back roads and with my camera and so forth. In any case, one that's not such a back road uh, was, goes by a little circle and then on down to, I'm not certain what the name of the town is, but it bypasses the Charlottesville Airport, which is a big deal. The Charlottesville Airport is an international airport. It's small by the standards I'm used to, but presidents have landed there, at least Obama. And I saw on a high hill near the airport this beautiful old church. And I stopped. And another interesting thing by the church is that there was a a paved road at the top of this hill that ran into grass. That is, it ended, dead-ended into grass. And I had to hike up on the hill. This beautiful church took lots of photographs from every angle. I loved it. 
And then I was driving by some months later, and it was gone. Now, I think I asked Justin about that when he was on the show, and it had something to do with the runway of the Charlottesville airport being extended. Can you enlighten us? Just I know that's a long question, but I need a short answer, and then we'll go to break and talk about the James River. Well, and I'm afraid I don't know that particular property, so I can't give you even a short answer on that. <laughs> okay. All right, then. That being the case, not a problem. We're going to take a break right now. We've been talking to the CEO of Preservation Virginia, Elizabeth Castelny, and we have lots more to talk about, particularly the James River and what um, some people are trying to do to it to change it forever from what it has been and then not the least of which is a historical site that is a major tourist attraction. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. A diving bell must be terribly claustrophobic, locked into a sphere isolated in a tightly bound universe, the opposite of a butterfly sensuously sampling all that the world can offer, discovering new life on every breeze. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly is the true story of Jean-Dominique Bobby, the successful editor of Elle magazine, who suffered a stroke which left him completely paralyzed except for his left eye. Triumphantly, the film is based upon Bobby's own book, which he wrote by painstakingly blinking his eye in a specially developed code. This could easily have been a depressing and claustrophobic film. Instead, the great American painter and director Julian Schnabel has created an award-winning work of art that reveals a very full life and an active mind. Bobby's ordeal triumphantly affirms the human spirit and the richness of our existence, expressed in family, love, lust, beauty, emotion, and terror. Many reviewers have declared The Diving Bell and The Butterfly to be cinema as it should be. But perhaps that isn't right. It's a singular project, one of a kind, a small masterpiece. And if you trust it, as with any work of art, it will gift you with a universe that will exhilarate, transcend, and long remain with you. Indie Film Minute. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. Again, my guest today is the CEO of Preservation for Genia, Elizabeth Castelny. We're having uh, quite an informative um, discussion about how we respect and preserve history while also respecting progress. And one of my big questions about that is the is it the Rosenwald schools and what what is the progress? Where are we in in saving them or transforming them, and what is the term you use when you transform the use of a facility into something else? Yes, you are talking about uh, one of the programs that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, Preservation Virginia identified that historically African-American schools were at risk, and specifically we were were targeting Rosenwald schools. And for your listeners, uh, Julius Rosenwald was the head of Sears and Roebuck for a number of years. Hmm. And during the Jim Crow era, early 20th century through about the 1930s, he recognized that uh, many 
African-American children were having a hard time getting an education, particularly in the South. Mm-hmm. And so we started a, basically, we, we call it a challenge grant program today, hmm. um, where he would put up a third of the funds to build these schools if the local community mm-hmm. raised a third and the white school dr- district brought in a third. Hmm. Um, and 367 schools were built in Virginia alone wow. through this program. Um, and some of them were used up until the 1960s and early 1970s when integration was ordered by the courts. So um, they're fascinating places, uh, and people, you know, there's still a generation of people that remember walking to these places and remember their lessons and their teachers. Hmm. Um, but often the buildings have fallen into disrepair. They're small. Some counties had two or three, as you can tell from having 360 around um, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we are working first through a grant we've received from the National Parks Service and through the Department of Historic Resources to identify those schools that still are standing mm-hmm. and to assess their condition. And then we'll work with local communities um, to decide how to reuse them. Um, They might be uh, adaptively reused for a different purpose, or they may be returned to being a community center. It's just really going to depend on on the community's needs. There are communities already around. There's a Goochland school here just outside of Richmond, and there are others uh, in Campbell County. That have and, and down in Gloucester mm-hmm. that have already restored these buildings and have found new uses. So one of the other things that we do is to bring interested parties together annually to talk about how these have been rehabilitated, how they've gotten new community support mm-hmm. for undertaking this work, um, and how they envision keeping these sustained over time. So again, it's about communities learning from communities. Yes. That, that's, that's really impressive. I'm sorry, I just said yes. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> that's okay. I was just going to say that, you know, I think it comes back to a question you asked earlier is how big is our staff? And we're not a big staff when you consider how large Virginia is. Yes. Um, but what we try to do is just to enlist everybody's support. So when there's a great program or effective advocacy effort, we try to get the organizers of that to teach other communities. And you know, then we, we grow a whole movement around Virginia. Okay. All right. Now, I know uh, there's another, at least another thing we want to discuss that's near and dear to your heart, and that's the James River. What is going on? What, what is the danger to the James River? Uh, well, down at Jamestown, within sight of Black Point, which is on the island, and, and where the early settlers looked down the river to see if if uh, Spanish invaders were coming, mm. um, there is a plan to build a transmission line that would intersect the river 
uh, adding 17 towers, some as high as 295 feet tall. And to give you some context, that's as tall as the Statue of Liberty. This transmission line will be in view, as, as I said, of historic Jamestown, in view of travelers on the Colonial Parkway, and it'll be right sort of in front of Carter's Grove. Um, this will dramatically change the context of the James River. For generations, Virginians have protected this 40 miles mm -hmm. of the James River uh, from overhead construction, or I should say over the river construction. Mm -hmm. In fact, in the 1980s, early 1990s, a plan to put a bridge um, not far from this site was defeated uh, because Virginians care so much about the James River and the history that's happened there. Yes. And being able to, to view it much like it would have looked 400 years ago had you been a Virginia Indian and using this route as the water highway mm. um, or the first settlers that came up um, on the boats to Jamestown. It largely looks very similar. Um, it's being used even more today than it was 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. In 2007, the Captain Johnson of Chesapeake National Historic Trail was designated, um, and it's brought a lot more recreational use to the river, and as well as, as I mentioned, the Colonial Parkway. That was a roadway that was completed in anticipation of 1957 and the 350th anniversary of Jamestown. And it was constructed in such a way that it leads you through dense forest and it opens up with these expansive views of the James River, mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. pristine yes. views. Um, and now what will intersect that will be a transmission line that will have blinking lights on it mm. day in, day out. Again, as we've talked before, we're not just saying no. Mm -hmm. um, we've worked with 10 other regional, uh, national, regional, statewide, and local organizations mm -hmm. to advocate for solutions that would bring the needed power to the peninsula and preserve um, the stretch of the James River. Um, been in an Army Corps process for four and a half years, which is a long time. Yes. Um, and the National Trust, working with our partners at the National Trust, they were able to bring in electrical engineers um, that could use the same materials and information that Dominion, the patron of this project, is using. And they were able to come up with four alternatives that were reliable, that test, that uh, would meet the energy needs of the peninsula and also met the criteria for reliability. Unfortunately, those four alternatives were dismissed. Just to repeat again, they were dismissed by whom? Um, the Army Corps and Dominion. Yes. So, but these solutions, these proposals from Preservation Virginia and those allies, the national, regional, statewide, etc., and the people you brought in to create these alternatives, they were also less expensive, their alternatives, yes? They were less expensive. They could be completed in less time, which Dominion continues to say that, and you know, there are federal regulations that are at play here that require this to happen sooner than later. Mm. Um, so this could have been done in less time and cost 
the consumer less um, because it had to do, and your listeners may be more familiar than, than me with um, the technical pieces of this, but it had to do with reconductoring or reconfiguring existing lines. Mm-hmm. So there wouldn't have to be any over-the-water construction. So that's what helps reduce the cost. Okay. So if Dominion and the, is it the Army Corps of Engineers? It is the Army Corps of Engineers. And Dominion Power, if, um, if they're saying no, and the way you describe, because as I said, I've, I've been to the James River, as they say, and it's incredible amount of history. What is your alternative now? Well, because the Army Corps of Engineers released a permit and said that they were concluding this federal process called Section 106 without undertaking an environmental impact statement. Mm -hmm. The National Trust in Preservation Virginia has filed a lawsuit so weak against the Army Corps um, to ensure that the legal and proper and reasonable steps are taken to protect this iconic place. And so we don't do this often. Um, and we didn't do it without real consideration. But we feel that it, if this can happen at Jamestown, yes, uh, it can happen anywhere. Mm. And so we need to make sure the regulations that are embodied in the National Historic Preservation Act are protected, as well as this very, very historic place. You know, from our work at Jamestown, and we've we acquired 22 acres in 1893, and Bill Kelso and his gifted team of archaeologists found the archaeological remains of the 1607 James Fort, and have been studying it for these past 23 years. This is not just a Virginia mm. historic resource. Um, this is an American place. This is where our nation began. Exactly. And and visitors come from all over the world to be a part of this place. And we feel that we needed to stand up and protect it. Just so we're clear, so everyone knows, Jamestown is the site of the first colony. Yes? Correct. Um, In 1607, Yes. English settlers came to Jamestown and constructed a fort. Um, And within the walls of that fort in 1619, the very first legislative assembly met in what was becoming this English colony and would later become the United States of America. Yes. Um, And it also is a place where some of the more tragic things in our history began. Um, In that same year, 1619, uh, a Dutch slave ship arrived, first at what is now Fort Monroe and then coming up the river to Jamestown. And so slavery was footholds of that began there too. Um, And so our history is complex, and it is our understanding of it and our perspective of it is Mm ever-changing. And when visitors come to Jamestown today, they really can experience a lot of what it was like to be there in those early years and really see a landscape on that river that is evocative of and would be very familiar to um, Virginia Indians of the time. And Jamestown is part of 
how do you refer to it? It's a historical triangle. Tell us about that. So uh, it's uh, Jamestown is part of what the region is called the historic triangle. Mm-hmm. So it includes Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Yorktown. Three centuries of history mm. um, and just a very short within a drive of each other. Yes. Um, and it's a, a phenomenal heritage tourism destination for national and international travelers. Preservation Virginia recently completed economic impact study of heritage tourism, mm-hmm. and it looked, we looked at the whole state. But one of the comments that kept coming back of why do people travel to Virginia mm-hmm. It's because of the authenticity of these sites it's, uh, and because of the authenticity of the experience. And that experience is more than just going to the history museums. Mm-hmm. It's experiencing the landscapes and the historic districts and the rural roads of Virginia. Yes. And so this is a place that we think is that deserves to be preserved. And how close is the Captain John Smith Chesapeake National Historic Trail? So um, that is a water trail, and Uh it actually encompasses places that Captain John Smith stopped during his travels. So it includes uh, this section of the James River, but other sections of the Chesapeake Bay, both in Virginia and in Maryland. Mm. So it's extensive. It is extensive, and it's a lot to just throw away, I mean, especially without going through all the required, necessary uh, steps to ensure you're getting the best deal, for heaven's sake, for everyone. Yes. Yeah, and I think because of tied to the trail, you know, there are areas that are industrialized in other places on this trail. You can't help, that can't, even further down the James River as you go towards the opening of the Chesapeake Bay and you pass through Newport News and shipbuilding, then we completely accept that. But that this 40-mile stretch has been kept all but pristine. You know, Mm. there's very little development that interferes with your experience on the river. That's what we're trying to protect. I understand. Okay. So that Preservation for Genuine and your team of 13 over there are not the only ones trying to protect the, the James River. Give us an idea of how we can get involved. Your website, uh, uh, Facebook page. What 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 ways can we contact Preservation Virginia and uh, be supportive? I would really encourage all of your listeners to you can visit our website at www.preservationvirginia spelled out all as one word dot org. And we're also on um, a number of social media platforms, so you can stay in touch with us on a very active Facebook page. Um, Just look for Preservation Virginia on your Facebook or Preservation Virginia on Instagram and Twitter. Um, We try to keep everybody informed of not just what we're doing, but what's happening in the preservation world in Virginia. So you'll get to see lots of stories about what different communities are doing to preserve, protect, and reuse their historic fabric. You know, I especially like the reusing part. I'm so impressed with that. As I said, Justin had to educate me on that point. But the idea that you can preserve history by reusing it in a way that is a resource in the 21st century, I think that's 
got to be, in my opinion, one of the greatest feelings when you're out there doing what you do. What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, here in Richmond, there's a neighborhood called Scott's Edition uh-huh. that five years ago, ten years ago, it was a mix of some residential but mostly industrial use. And as the the businesses had changed around Richmond, there were more and more empty buildings that were coming online. Mm. And now it's a vibrant place where those buildings have been adapted to breweries and cideries and apartments and other um, light industry but and homes. And yeah. it's just great to see how this, how buildings can be used today, mm-hmm. maybe differently than they were used in the past, mm. but they're still used. And, you know, it makes sense yes. because it's greener. Um, you're not filling up a landfill. Um, you're actually utilizing and rehabbing them. You're often utilizing the local labor force instead of new construction that often brings in their own force from out of town. Um, it's a way that creates jobs and it creates um, a vibrancy for our communities. And that, Richmond's not alone. It's happening. I was in um, Salem two weeks ago mm. and they had four rehabilitation projects happening in their downtown area. And Roanoke is another place, Charlottesville, mm-hmm. every place around Virginia is really catching on that this is a way to move forward as a community. Since you mentioned Charlottesville, was Preservation Virginia uh, involved with the, the Jefferson School City Center? I think Justin was, um, Justin Serafin on our staff was very much involved in that, and I know we have a number of our board members have worked with that. It, the Jefferson School hosted our um, our preservation conference last year. Um, so we really were delighted to be able to, um, to utilize that space and bring people from all over Virginia to see what Charlottesville's done with that school. Oh, I'm glad to hear that because uh, I, was, I was very much involved in the first two, I think, of three videos about uh, Jefferson School. I was in the first when it was uh, simply an empty building uh, before anything started in the restoration. And then I came back and directed the, the second video of all the, the things that had been done. Andrea Douglas, who's the uh, director there, uh, had said in the video, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to, and, and so be able to come back and video and, and show that she did exactly what she said they were going to do. Anyway, this has been such a grand conversation. I hope you've enjoyed and learned from and appreciate what uh, Preservation Virginia and the team at, uh, there under the CEO, Elizabeth Costelny, uh, our guest today, what they're doing for many things in the Commonwealth of Virginia, but particularly now in the James River advocacy. Where are we in the, uh, in the procedure of the lawsuit? Has it just been filed and... The lawsuit's just been filed, okay. so it will it'll play out its course. Um, but we are hoping that it will result in an environmental impact study that can look at all these alternatives. Fantastic. All right, Elizabeth Costelny, thank you so very much for being on the Reasonable Voices today. We wish you and everyone 
not only a preservation for Jenny, you have the people there, but all the people who get involved with you, who uh, form those alliances, uh, you know, local neighborhoods working with you to accomplish these goals. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you so very much, Elizabeth Costelny, for being on our show today. We wish you all the best. Bye. Thank you. Bye now. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Human relationships are complex, and when you throw alcohol into the mix, they tend to get even more so. This simple truth is the crux of Joe Swanberg's Drinking Buddies, a delightfully low-key comedy starring Jake Johnson, Olivia Wilde, Anna Kendrick, and Ron Livingston. Luke and Kate are employees at a craft brewery. They are best friends, they drink together, they have lunch together, and they distract each other from the monotony of work. When Kate's boyfriend invites Luke and his fiancée to join them for a foursome weekend at his family's beach house, their relationships grow muddier, with a little help from booze, of course. The best part about Drinking Buddies is the chemistry between the four main characters, especially the friendship between Luke and Kate, played by Johnson and Wilde. It feels comfortably lived in, and watching their troublesome but burgeoning romantic feelings is like watching a well-choreographed dance. But fear not, this isn't Hollywood, and romance doesn't come easily. We might just be surprised to find no satisfying pat ending. We could be left challenged with a twinge of disappointment, sweetened by a slice of the lives of some characters we feel we could know and like. Drinking Buddies. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the Reasonable Voices heard round the world. Trump Team. Accessories before and after the white supremacy facts. What causes wars and loses elections is fear, not hate. Fear of losing something real or imaginary. Fear of being overlooked, forgotten, or ignored. Fear of being left behind thought stupid, or not being able to keep up. But when fear and hate marry, equality and justice for all are rarely the resulting issue. Whether the rippling effect of a Trump election or not, in 2017, fear of equal opportunity, heritage of immigration diversity, and becoming America's new minority has thrown its panicked gauntlet at the feet of America's character. American history is a continuing roller coaster ride of memories from differing points of view. Rattled by suspicions of betrayal, drives many to betray, love thy neighbor as thyself. Our history is in the making and the maker, but only in America do we celebrate rebellion against our Constitution, which guarantees freedom of speech when in union with the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government. As incompetent as Donald Trump is, it's not just his dishonesty or even his pilot-like washing his hands of Afghanistan, turning it over to generals for endless war. It's that 67% of Republicans support his response to the domestic terrorism invading American cities. 
when Native Americans protested the Dakota Access Pipeline to protect water, environment, and their sacred land, they were shot with rubber bullets by North Dakota police. But when armed white supremacists attacked interdenominational clergy who were obeying their permit to peacefully assemble, police protection was frozen in place until Charlottesville citizens put themselves between the assaulted clergy and the brown shirt-style menace. Seven score and twelve years ago, American families fought over preserving, protecting, and defending a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men were created equal versus the right for plantation owners fearful of economic loss to incite secession from America. 750,000 Americans died from disease, malnutrition, imprisonment, and combat. In 2012 numbers, 7.5 million died for opposition definitions of America. In a war more temporarily muted by presidential emancipation and assassination than ended by two generals exchanging personal interpretations of the greater good. Still, David Duke and company deny us peace and goodwill toward all, and in 2017 statues are the latest excuse for incivility, gerrymandering, second-class citizenship, hate speech for free speech, and murder when an American skin is a tanner hue, religion not Christian, gender female, politics not conservative, sexual preferences not hetero, and when not Bannon Gorka Miller clones. Arguably, alt-right and bigots are interchangeable labels, but the former portends fresh faces, not older open carry carrying neo-Nazi and Confederate flags. From eyewitnesses to the University Tiki Torch Parade Friday, August 11, 2017, the alt-right are Bannon babies. Twenty-somethings being radically educated, not to be the tip of the spear, but the point of a sharpened cue-stick. The descendants of Jefferson Davis and Generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson have condemned the violence in the name of their ancestors and joined the call to put Confederate statues in museums where they can be venerated by anyone wishing to relive the 19th century in 21st century air-conditioned comfort. Any nation so conceived and so dedicated was not lulled back into civil war because of a February 1915 birth of a nation promoting good guy images of the Klan. Nonetheless, to be vigilant, we need emulate the nine Tougaloo college students who, on May 27, 1961, exercised their right to do homework in a Jackson, Mississippi library. Their read-in illuminated what they were for not forces they opposed. What if in the 1930s no Germans attended Hitler rallies? What if we fired Mitch McConnell's and Paul Ryan's GOP for having physically challenged Americans in peaceful assembly, dragged from their wheelchairs, and removed from the halls of Congress? What if we ask the Department of Homeland Security why it's halting funding plans for Life After Hate, Sammy Rangel's anti-white extremism group? It's not about the statues. Racism is neither symbolism nor imaginary. It's people so fearful of national evolution that they elect international isolation.
Although not the light of the world, we are the dawn's early light, eclipsing the bully's hate, the politician's fear, and waging of endless war in silence. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.